Well, church, it is so good to be with you this morning, and thank you so much for joining us, those who are here, and all of you who are at home. Um, Before I read our passage this morning, uh, I do want to just take a a brief moment to thank those in our church who have cared for Sam and Rosie Myers this past uh, week as they grieve the passing of their only son, Philip. It was a, a very difficult week. Yet God's grace was made evident through so many of you, especially their their small group. And I'm I'm just so thankful for God's grace that it shines through even in times of of sorrow. And I'm thankful for this church that has uh, clearly learned how to weep with those who weep and draws us near to the brokenhearted. So thank you, church, for your care for them. And we're going to need each other uh, in the years to come to care for one another and with the grace that God supplies for us. So if you could, open your Bibles to 1 Thessalonians chapter 5. 1 Thessalonians chapter 5 will be in verses 1 through 11. And we continue our series through Paul's letter to this young church in Thessalonica. And you'll remember last week, uh, Pastor Tommy walked us through chapter 4, verses 13 through 18, where Paul began to address some questions the Thessalonians had about the second coming of Christ. Specifically, our text last week answered the question, what happens to Christians who have passed away before the return of Christ? And we saw that these deceased believers will not miss out on anything, but will be raised with Christ on the last day, and all who have trusted in Christ will live with him forever. Now, as we come to our text, Paul continues on this theme and will address a different question, a question of how will Christians who are alive experience Christ's coming, and how should they prepare for the coming day of the Lord? So follow along as I read 1 Thessalonians chapter 5, verses 1 to 11. This is what God's word says. Now concerning the times and the seasons, brothers, you have no need to have anything written to you. For you yourselves are fully aware that the day of the Lord will come like a thief in the night. While people are saying, there is peace and security, then sudden destruction will come upon them as labor pains come upon a pregnant woman and they will not escape. But you are not in darkness, brothers, for that day to surprise you like a thief. For you are all children of light, children of the day. We are not of the night or of the darkness. So then, let us not sleep as others do, but let us keep awake and be sober. For those who sleep, sleep at night, and those who get drunk are drunk at night. But since we belong to the day, let us be sober, having put on the breastplate of faith and love and for a helmet, the hope of salvation. For God has not destined us for wrath, but to obtain salvation through our Lord Jesus Christ, who died for us so that whether we are awake or asleep, we might live with him. Therefore, encourage one another and build one another up just as you are doing. This is the word of the Lord. Would you pray with me? Father in heaven, we come before you this morning 
as our song said, as pilgrims on the narrow way. This narrow way is not easy. Our burdens often feel heavy. And we know this road is full of dangers, full of toils, and full of snares. But we trust that your word is a lamp unto our feet and a light to our path. And so now as we come to your word, we ask that your Holy Spirit would use it to encourage us, to strengthen us as we look forward to your coming kingdom and the eternal life that awaits all who trust in Christ alone. Speak, O Lord, for your people are listening. And all God's people said, amen. At 12.10 a.m. today, while 1,500 riot police officers, 200 plainclothes detectives, and 100 journalists kept watch outside the church, a teenage boy stuck his head out the third floor window and yelled to the crowd, Nothing's happening! This quote comes from an LA Times article uh, from October 29th, 1992, reporting on hundreds of followers who gathered outside a church in South Korea, believing that they, along with an estimated 20,000 other South Koreans, would be lifted into heaven at the stroke of midnight. But instead, the night was interrupted by a teenager announcing the obvious miscalculation. Nothing was happening. Countless followers of the Dami mission and their leader, their disgraced leader, Lee Jong-Rim, were selling their homes, abandoning their families in light of his end of days prediction, only to see the sun come up again on a new day, a day that they never thought they would see. And unfortunately, uh, failed end times predictions like these are not uncommon. Throughout history, different cults, different religious groups, and many, unfortunately, bearing the name of Christ, have made predictions about the end of the world or the coming of Christ. Probably the most famous and most costly examples of this is found in the history of the Jehovah's Witnesses. I remember writing a paper uh, when I was in, in college about this cult, and one of the definitive books I used in my study was called Apocalypse Delayed. Uh, this book detailed the Jehovah's Witness founder, Charles T. Russell, and his predictions concerning when Christ would return. He first predicted it in 1878, and then in 1914, and then after those didn't work out, his followers after them, after him predicted it would keep come in 1925, and then in 1942, and then in 1975. And all along this history, again, their Leaders encourage their followers to, hey, don't get married, don't have any more children, he's coming back soon. Now we may rightly scoff uh, and, and even lament these doomsday predictions and the tragic effects they had on so many, but this morning I want us to consider at least one thing that we can take away from these foolish predictions, and that is this. What you think about the end of days, what you think about the last day, will change the way you live today. Whether you think Jesus is coming back, or maybe you're here or, or listening and you don't believe in the coming, coming judgment, but whatever you think about the last day, 
it will change the way you live today. And as we look at Paul's letter, we will find that this young Thessalonian church had some questions about this day of the Lord and wondering when it would come and maybe fearing that they would be found unprepared for that day. So like a good pastor, Paul does not dismiss their fears, does not dismiss their question, but he, he addresses them with clear authority because he understands that what this church believes about the coming of the Lord will make a significant difference in how they live today. And so my hope for us this morning is that we will understand that the day of the Lord is coming and that those who have trusted in Christ will live differently in the present because they know that in the future, they will not encounter God's wrath, but salvation because of the work of Christ. We're going to walk through our text answering three questions. The first being, what is the day of the Lord? What is the day of the Lord in verses 1 and 2? Second, how will we experience the day of the Lord? In verse 3 and 5, and then we'll conclude with answering the question, how should we live in light of the day of the Lord? How should we prepare for this day? So first, what is the day of the Lord? Well, first, we can see from this text and from the broader biblical context that the day of the Lord is a day of judgment and of salvation. Again, you'll see this phrase, day of the Lord, in verse 2. It is a phrase that is packed with weighty imagery and meaning. It is a phrase used throughout the Old and New Testament. And if you kind of did a search and you kind of saw, hey, how is this phrase used in each one of these passages, you'll, you'll notice a common theme of God's judgment that runs through all of them. They describe God's judgment upon his adversaries and or those who claim to be God's people but are actually not. I'll just give you one example of, of such a passage in Zephaniah 1, verses 14 to 16. And as I read it, just notice even some of the similar language to our passage last week. It says, the great day of the Lord is near, near and hastening fast. The sound of the day of the Lord is bitter. The mighty man cries aloud there. A day of wrath is that day, a day of distress and anguish, a day of ruin and devastation, a day of darkness and gloom, a day of clouds and thick darkness, a day of trumpet blast and battle cry against the fortified cities and against the lofty battlements. So this is kind of the imagery that I think Paul's readers, at least the Jewish ones, are drawing from, or maybe even Paul's teaching, uh, as they anticipate the coming day of the Lord. But nevertheless, uh, the day of the Lord is not, not all doom and gloom. On a number of occasions, uh, the texts that include this phrase also point towards salvation, salvation and vindication for God's people. I'll give you just one example of that, Joel chapter 2. The sun shall be turned to darkness and the moon to blood before the great and awesome day of the Lord comes. And it shall come to pass that everyone who calls on the name of the Lord shall be saved. For in Mount Zion and in Jerusalem there shall be those who escape, as the Lord has said, and among the survivors shall be those whom the Lord calls. So therefore we can conclude that the day of the Lord that Paul is referring to is a day of judgment and salvation, a day when King Jesus will bring his final judgment against his enemies, and he will bring salvation for the people for whom the Lord calls. 
It will be both judgment and salvation. What else can we learn about the day of the Lord? Well, Paul makes it clear here that this day of the Lord, it is certain, but it is also unpredictable. Look at verses 1 and 2 again. Now concerning the times and the seasons, brothers, you have no need to have anything written to you, for you yourselves are fully aware that the day of the Lord will come like a thief in the night. So Paul does not alleviate the church's fears about this coming day of the Lord by prognosticating on the when or giving out specific dates or times or seasons. Why not? Because he believes they already know what they need to know. That the day of the Lord is certain. That it will come and they won't know when it will come. Again, Paul, Paul's teaching here is right in accordance with what Jesus taught in, in Acts 1-7 and other places when he says, it is not for you to know the times or the seasons that the Father has fixed by his own authority. The day of the Lord is coming, but it is unpredictable. Therefore, church, we ought not to be tantalized by the supposed insider knowledge or someone who claims to have cracked the Bible code. Jesus is coming back, but it is not for us to know the time or the season. Now, I know uh, in these difficult days that we uh, find ourselves in, may maybe you've longed for the return of Christ more than ever before. Or maybe the opposite. Maybe you've been tempted because of all the circumstances around us and doubt whether or not he'll come at all. But today, I want to remind you, Christian, that Christ, he has not forgotten us. He is not delayed. Jesus is never late. He will arrive precisely when he means to. Scriptures say elsewhere, right, the Lord is not slow to fulfill his promises. You may feel like he's slow, but he's not slow. But he is patiently waiting for his people to repent. It is for our good and the good of those who have not yet repented that he has not returned. And so church, we are right to continue to pray Come, Lord Jesus. That's a good prayer to pray. And we are right to fervently and continually boldly proclaim the gospel of repentance until he comes. We know he is coming, but we don't know when. So in light of, of all this that we now know about the day of the Lord, that it's, again, full of judgment, it'll be full of salvation, that it's certain and it's unpredictable, we see Paul now turn and answer the question, how will we experience this day of the Lord when it comes? How will we experience this day of the Lord when it comes? Look back at, uh, we'll start in verse 2 and go through verse 5. And I want you to see that this day of the Lord will be received differently by two different types of people. Look at verse 2. For you yourselves are fully aware that the day of the Lord will come like a thief in the night. When people are saying... There is peace and security. Then sudden destruction will come upon them as labor pains come upon a pregnant woman and they will not escape. But you are not in darkness, brothers, for that day to surprise you like a thief. For you are all children of the light, children of the day. We are not of the light, the night, or of the darkness. When I was in seminary, I worked as a server at a restaurant called J. Alexander's. Uh, 
They don't have them around here, but it's nice. It's a nice, fancy, kind of upscale, traditional American restaurant. And this restaurant was extremely serious about their service. And as a way to maintain their serving excellence, each month we would be subject to a mystery shopper, which meant that either a couple or an individual would, would come in like any other uh, guests would come in, they come in unannounced, and they would keep track of all the different points of service that the server w- would, would give them. You know, like how fast were they seated at their table, how quickly were they greeted, how fast did their drink get refilled, you know, what's, what was the, uh, what is the knowledge the server had of the menu. And it was always a very big day when the mystery shop report, report was revealed. Right, everyone was very nervous about this day, uh, whether or not you were the one who was getting evaluated and what score you would receive. The, the manager would gather all the servers together and he would reveal this. And if you got a bad score, uh, it was almost assured that you would be reprimanded and we had even seen people get fired over a bad mystery shopper report. But if you received a good score, you would be praised and you would actually get a free steak dinner. So two very different possible outcomes, and you had no idea what the report would say until it was revealed by the manager. And church, I fear that this is how many Christians look at the coming judgment. They're hoping that Jesus will give us a good score, a good life score on the final day, but living as such a way that they don't know what verdict they will receive on the last day. In our passage right here, Paul tells us here that we we don't need to wait for the day of the Lord to know how we will experience it. Again, Paul gives us two different types of people, two different types of experiences on the day of the Lord. One characterized by darkness and the other by light. And let's look at both of those. First, I want to look at how the people in darkness will experience the day of the Lord they will experience it as those who are completely unaware. They will be caught completely off guard. For them, the day of the Lord will come like a thief in the night when people are saying there is peace and security. Now, Paul here is speaking of darkness, right, in a spiritual sense. Those who are in darkness are living as if there is no coming judgment. And that their actions have no eternal consequences. They, they are in spiritual darkness. They are blind to the reality of the coming king. They are unaware of the offense of their sin before a holy God. I think we have really good reason to believe that Paul is drawing from the teachings of Christ in Matthew 24. You can follow along as I read. It says, But concerning that day and hour, no one knows, not even the angels of heaven nor the Son, but the Father only. For as were the days of Noah, so will be the coming of the Son of Man. For as in those days before the flood they were eating and drinking, marrying and giving in marriage, until the day when Noah entered the ark, and they were unaware, until the flood came and swept them all away, so will be the coming of the Son of Man. So the people in Noah's day, right, they lived in moral darkness, unaware of the flood of judgment that was coming. I think in the same manner, the flood of Christ's judgment is coming. And the vast majority of this world is filled with people who believe the rain is not coming. 
They believe Satan's lie that their souls are safe and at peace. And that if there is a God, he will, he will surely accept them based on their good works or maybe the bad things that they haven't done. Or maybe they buy into the common lie. I think we're, we're seeing increasingly in our time that we don't have a soul and that after death there is nothing. And so they are free to obey the passions of their flesh in their minds. For the people in spiritual darkness, the Lord's coming will catch them completely by surprise like a thief sneaking into your house at night. But not only will they be surprised, I think, I think Paul wants us to note how undesirable and how unwelcome this day will be for those in darkness. Look at verse 3 again. Then sudden destruction will come upon them as labor pains come upon a pregnant woman, and they will not be able to escape. Paul's comparing their experience the day of the Lord to a pregnant mother experiencing the sudden and unwelcome arrival of labor pains. Now you have to remember, this is the first century. There were no epidurals in the first century. You know, once, once labor started, pain was inevitable. Drawing from my limited experience with, with labor, uh, I know that there are, again, all sorts of natural ways, you know, that you can try to make a mother more comfortable during contractions. I, I remember we went to classes uh, so that I could be a good help to my wife as she labored to try, try to help ease the pain. Yet I found out very quickly that I was some help but really no help. Uh, th there was nothing that I could do to remove the pain of what my wife was experiencing it. There was, there was no way for her to escape it. And church, so too will it be for those in darkness when the day of the Lord comes. People will receive a surprising and unwelcome visit from Almighty God. And his judgment, it will be sudden. And there will be no way for them to escape his wrath. There are no do-overs. They won't be able to call for outside help. They will face the judgment of the king of kings alone. And there will be no way of escape. The labor pains will start, but no baby will come. And I know this is unpleasant to think about and I don't enjoy talking about this, but it's, it is absolutely important that we understand what is at stake and what our text says to us. And you'll notice in our passage that it describes this judgment as a sudden destruction. Well, what does Paul mean by destruction? Well, I, I do not believe destruction means annihilation people of the darkness who have rejected God's reign and rule will, will not cease to exist. But I believe rather this phrase carries a sense of utter and eternal ruin. The judgment received will not just be for one day, but it will be for an eternity. And I'm convinced by this interpretation of this eternal punishment if we just take into account Paul's second letter that we have in 2 Thessalonians. If you have your Bibles, just flip over a page or two to 2 Thessalonians chapter 1. And we see in verse 7 through 9 where Paul references this destruction again. 2 Thessalonians 1, 
verses 7 through 9, starting midway through the verse. When the Lord Jesus is revealed from heaven with his mighty angels in flaming fire, inflicting vengeance on those who do not know God and on those who do not obey the gospel of our Lord Jesus, they will suffer the punishment of eternal destruction away from the presence of the Lord and from the glory of his might. It will be a terrible day for those who do not know Christ. On this day, the salvation that has been offered freely by Christ is no longer an option. But they will suffer an eternal damnation away from the presence of the Lord. The righteous wrath of God will fall upon them, and there will be no escape. So therefore, if, if you're listening to this this morning and, and, and you know, if you're at home or you're here, and, and you know that you have not trusted in Christ for salvation, I, I plead with you today. Would you, would you consider repenting of your sins? Would you look to Christ? He is the only way, he is your judge, and he is the only hope that you have of being justified before a holy God. You will not be justified by your works, nor by your family, nor by your best efforts, but in Christ alone. And he, friend, he, he is ready to receive your repentance today and to grant you eternal life so that on the last day, you don't have to receive eternal wrath, but you will receive eternal rest with the king. And might it be, might it be that the Lord has delayed his coming so that you might repent, that he is patiently awaiting your repentance. Church, the, the reality of this day, it, it has to sober us and it has to inject some sense of urgency in us to take advantage of the opportunities God gives us today to share the good news of the gospel. And I'm so thankful for so many of you that again, have constantly prayed and constantly have shared with those around you who do not know Jesus. And in our day, I, th I think the reality of death is increasingly more evident all around us, and, and yet still those in darkness are still morally unaware that something worse than death awaits them. And so, whether you're here or at home, I want you to just think of just maybe just one person, and even right now, just send up a little prayer for them and ask the Lord to give the light of Christ to shine in their hearts and maybe even give you the boldness to share the hope of Christ with them soon. Because church, that is what we have, right? We have real hope. In Christ, we have real hope and we see this real hope in verse four. Look at the hope we have on this last day. But you are not in darkness, brothers, for that day to surprise you like a thief. For you are all of children, you are all children of light, children of the day. We are not of the night or of the darkness. Right here, Paul addresses the Thessalonians, not as people who are in darkness, but children of light, members of the family of God. They are not in moral darkness, but he characterizes them by light, because the light of Christ has shone into their hearts. By God's grace, they are those who have been given eyes to see the world through the eyes of God by his word. And since they are children of light, that they are of the day, 
The day of the Lord will be a day of glorious anticipation. They won't be surprised like a thief, but they will welcome Christ's second coming. Now to be clear, they will still be surprised at the timing, but they will not be morally surprised. They will not expect condemnation, but commendation from God because they know who their heavenly father is and they know that he knows them. When I was a kid, uh, there was a season where my dad went on frequent uh, business trips for his work. And my, my sister and I, we could not wait for the day when dad would come home. Because, of course, we, we missed him, but also because he would always bring back awesome presents from wherever he went, um, wherever he traveled. And so when my mom would tell us, hey, dad's coming home tonight, my sister and I would get all excited. We would sit by the the door and we would just, we could not wait to hear that sound of the garage door opening and my dad walked through the door. And whenever he walked through that front door, we would jump with joy and scream, daddy's home, daddy's home. And we'd run. And, and why would we do that? Because we knew that his coming meant joy for us. And church, so will it be when our God makes his home with us again. All of his children will shout for joy, Daddy's home. He's home. And we will run into his arms unashamed and guiltless and sharing in all the benefits of being his children. We won't shrink back. We won't shudder in fear at his coming. When that trumpet sounds, we won't be nervous about what he'll say to us. Not because we're confident in ourselves, but because we know our Heavenly Father and we know what he has done for us and we know that we are his. So what verdict will the judge declare upon your life at the last day? How will you experience this day of the Lord? You can know that today. And friend, I would urge you, it's not too late, if you haven't already, to take seriously the coming judgment. It's not too late to humble yourself and bow before Almighty God today. For right, that is what we will all be doing on the last day, whether in fearful terror or in fearless worship. And that brings us to our third question. So in light of all that we know about the coming of the day of the Lord and how we will experience it, then how should we live in light of this day to come? How should our knowledge of the last day change the way we live? How should we prepare for his coming? Well, Paul gives us those instructions. With our final verses, look at verses six and eight with me. So then let us not sleep as others do, but let us keep awake and be sober. For those who sleep, sleep at night. And those who get, are drunk, are drunk at night. But since we belong to the day, let us be sober, having put on the breastplate of faith and love and for a helmet, the hope of salvation. So here again, we see two different groups of people who live differently in light of the coming day of the Lord. 
One group belongs to the night, the other belongs to the day. One group will be found unprepared for Christ's coming, and the other is battle ready. First, we see Paul instructs these Thessalonians to keep awake and be sober rather than to be found drunk and asleep. So what in the world is Paul getting at? Well, you may remember last week in chapter 4, verse 15, Paul refers to Christians who have died as those who have fallen asleep. Well, here in our text, Paul uses a different Greek word for sleep. In our passage, Paul is using this term, sleep, as describing someone's moral and spiritual state. They are physically alive, but they are morally unconscious. They are content, sleeping through the alarm, unaware of the coming meeting with their maker. And Paul tells them, again, we don't want you to be sleeping and also not to be drunk. Now, there is no indication that we have that the Thessalonians had a some sort of drinking problem, but, but rather I think Paul again is continuing on using a, a metaphor to describe those who live in a spiritual stupor, those who are so drunk on the wine of the world that they have numbed themselves to any feeling of fear at the coming judgment. And I do, and I do fear uh, that temptation towards spiritual sleepiness and spiritual drunkenness, I think, has increased over this past year, and I, and I wonder how, how you know, all the with all the changes and all the different again world crises that we've kind of lived through have have made us more comfortable with our excuses for our lack of pursuit of God and His people over this year. I wonder if that's increased. I, I know that Satan would love for God's people to be so intoxicated, maybe with the the news cycle, that we end up numbing ourselves to God's word and his calling for us to be ready for when he comes. So it's in in contrast to the sleepy, drunken people of the night that Paul calls Christians to, who are belonged to the day, that they should be awake. They should be barked with alert, sober-mindedness as they look forward to the coming of the Lord. Well, what does it what does it look like to be spiritually awake and sober? Why, well, I, I think to be spiritually awake and alert is, I think, just simply living as if our king could come back at any moment. Not living in a fearful panic of when he comes, but with an eager anticipation. You want to be found ready when he comes. Now, imagine with me just for a moment that you knew Jesus was coming back Next Monday, not this Monday, but next Monday. Um, how would that change the way you live this week? Would it change anything? Would you watch the same shows? Would you use the same language? Would you hang out with the same people? Would you be more likely to read your Bible this week? Would you be more likely to go to church on Sunday? Who would you make sure that you talk to? Would you do more or less chores around the house to help your spouse? Now it's true, I want to make sure that we all are clear on this, when Christ comes back, no one's going to be found in perfect obedience. And yes, on our last day, our boast is only Christ and not, not our works. But we can't miss what this passage is, is driving at. The, the surety of Christ's coming must make a difference in how you and I live today. 
this passage, right, it's abundantly clear, we, we see this even in Jesus' teaching, that, that the hope of the return of Christ changes the way Christians live today. And as we prepare for that day, I think we need to play, pay close attention to his word. We prepare for that day by paying close attention to how we walk in this world. We need to be constantly on guard and watch out for the lies of the devil that seek to rob us of our coming hope. And I think this seems hard. I think this seems really difficult and to, to be always be on alert, to always be, be there. But, but you realize here, look, that God actually gives us the armor for the battle and he gives us a promise that will keep us fighting to the very end. Look at verse eight with me. But since we belong to the day, let us be sober, having put on the breastplate of faith and love and for a helmet, the hope of salvation. Right? God has not left us ill-equipped for the battle. He gives us faith, he gives us hope and love. And you'll notice here that Paul doesn't say put on as if he's commanding them to put on this armor, but rather having put on. The verb tense here in Greek tells us that the, that the people of the day are already armed with these defenses. We guard our most vital organs with faith, love, and hope that God has already supplied us in Christ. We defend against spiritual sleepiness by constantly praying in faith that God would finish the work he began in us. We guard against spiritual drunkenness by refusing to love the things of this world, but rather loving God and one another. And we maintain our hope to the very end by setting our minds on Christ, our living hope of salvation. The hope that one day the battle with sin will be over and our faith will be made sight. God has given us everything we need to be ready for that day. He has not left us ill-equipped for the day of the Lord to surprise us like a thief. But he has clothed us with his armor, the armor of faith, love, and hope. And with this armor, he also gives us a promise. And look at this promise that he will keep us to the very end, verse 9 and 10. For God has not destined us for wrath, but to obtain salvation through our Lord Jesus Christ, who died for us, so that whether we are awake or asleep, we might live with him. You may be wondering why Paul is so confident that at the very least, the majority of the church will not receive judgment on the last day, but salvation. Well, we see Paul is confident that the Thessalonians will be ready for that day, because God himself has not destined them for wrath, but for salvation. Paul is confident that God is faithful to his promises. And Paul is sure that God's sovereign appointment, his saving work, has been made visible in their lives. Paul had expressed the same confidence in them earlier in chapter 1, when he says, For we know, brothers, loved by God, that he has chosen you. Their works are not the foundation of Paul's confidence, but the fruit of faith, the love, and the hope that they have shown to one another points to the saving work of God in their lives, the God who chose them before the foundation of the world to be holy and blameless in his sight. And church, this is good news. This is great news. And this text shows us that we ought to encourage one another with these words, that those who have put their faith in Christ can be sure today that they are not destined for wrath, but for salvation. And that nothing in all the earth can separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus. Not even death. Right? For it says, whether we are awake or asleep, we might live with him. 
So whether we are dead or alive, our destiny is secure. Our hope is fixed, not because of our work, but because Jesus died and by his death, he has given us eternal life. Christ's death means life for us. The only one who could satisfy God's wrath for sin and grant sinners like you and me salvation is Jesus Christ alone, the perfect lamb of God. And when Jesus died, he satisfied God's wrath on our behalf for all of God's children, for all who come to him. Jesus bore our sins on the cross so that whoever believes in him will not perish but have eternal life. And that is why, church, we can prepare for that day without fear but with an eager anticipation. Because Jesus died, we don't have to fear the day of the Lord. Because Jesus died, we can be sure that God's wrath is not for us because Christ has satisfied it on our behalf. And because Jesus died, we can live differently. We can deny ourselves the pleasures of this world. We can deny ourselves the passions of our flesh because we know a better day is coming. A day when King Jesus will return for his own. And every knee will bow and every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. So friends, has the truth about the coming day of the Lord, has it changed the way you live today? What, what are we spending our lives preparing for? Are you prepared to meet King Jesus? And when he comes, will he find you sleeping? Or will he find you awake and alert, ready to enter into the eternal rest of your king? Let's pray. Father in heaven, we thank you that you have not destined us for wrath, but for salvation. And I pray that if there is anyone here or is listening this morning who does not know how they will experience the day of the Lord, would you grant them right now the gift of repentance and the joy of knowing that their hope is secure, that on the final day, it will be a day of celebration for them, for they have fixed their eyes on Jesus. And for those of us who are here, who know Jesus as King, Lord, would you help us to live as though our King will return at any moment. Help us pay careful attention to your word. Help us to love one another and encourage one another, just as so many are already doing. Lord, help us to keep our eyes fixed on Jesus until that day we see him face to face. And all God's people said, amen.